Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 134, A Krupp Makes His Own Rules. Last time, by May 28, 1943, Alfred's Krumpenier had built a factory for the skilled foreign prisoners of Auschwitz, and right away, 500 men of the camp were selected and got to work making fuses. For the new cannon king had a surprise planned for de Fuhrer. As he was made the sole proprietor of the concern in mid-1943, he would not be recognized and showered with gifts by Berlin until the end of the year, when there was more time for a ceremony. Thus, Alfred wanted his factory at Auschwitz to be at peak production by then. Just one more thing for him to be praised for, as he accepted the orb and mace of authority from his father. Alas, it was not to be. To be sure, the few Krupenier that stayed behind to teach the inmates enough German so their duties could be explained did their part, as did the SS guards, who got the men up at 6 a.m. every day to be taken to the Krupp factory. And the guards provided all the motivation they could think of. The unskilled prisoners were transformed into smoke that emerged out of the crematorium chimneys, and their skilled counterparts could easily end up the same if they gave the guards too much trouble. The prisoners were always on the edge of starvation, their clothes far from adequate, the lack of warmth of their barracks. In fact, the only area free of the cold was their workshop, but whether this was done deliberately is not known. In essence, the outlook at Auschwitz was one of, none of you deserve to live, but if you work hard and keep your head down, you may stay alive a bit longer. And that was how the SS guards motivated the inmates to work. After all, over the entrance gate hung the sign, work brings freedom. For comparison's sake, about 25 companiers stayed behind to train, and two of those men shared their food and cigarettes with the men in the Crump version of the Jewish prison uniforms. To be sure, there were other prisoners, non-Jewish, that were allowed to live in order to serve Alfred's quarterly goals. Dutchmen, Poles, Czechs, some Frenchmen, but the majority of Krupp's laborers were Jewish. Krupp's labor group here would not turn out to be the great success for himself and the surprise for Hitler he had been hoping for. By the fall of 1943, when Hitler's representatives arrived at the Villa Hugel to witness the passing of the torch, literally the orb and mace of authority to Alfred, the following had already transpired. Italy proper had pulled out of the war, had actually, in fact, declared war on Nazi Germany, as southern Italy had been invaded by the Allies. The Ploesti oil refineries in Romania were bombed by the U.S. 9th Bomber Command. The Germans were having trouble in Greece and had been beaten in the Battle of Kursk. But most importantly, the city of Kharkov in the Ukraine had been liberated by Soviet troops. With the surrounding area in such a state of flux, Alfred could not risk losing 
his entire investment. Hence, his equipment at Auschwitz was loaded up and sent to two other camps, both in Silesia, on the Polish-Czech border. Even worse, as the Soviet army continued its ever-expanding operations in the Ukraine, Krupp lost camp after camp. The equipment and the slaves that he had been paying for were moved ever closer to Germany proper. Though it's hard to know the true numbers, even with the Americans moving fast into Essen, Krupp's staff members were able to burn wheelbarrow full of papers that would have given such facts. Still, it is estimated that by August of 43, Krupp had a comparatively small number of foreign workers, or POWs, compared to what he would one day own. At the time, he had around 11,500 foreign civilians, 2,400 POWs, and practically no concentration camp workers. But these numbers only represented what were being held in Essen. There were others, many others. Some 45,000 Russians in German steel mills outside of Germany, and some 126,000 Russians slaving away in various mines. As for the concentration camp workers, by 1945, he would be the master of over 100,000 of them. Of course, it must be remembered that untold millions of the unskilled, mostly Jews, would be exterminated in whatever camp they were being held in. And in the strictest business sense, Alfred's plan was working. The skilled laborers were producing massive amounts of arms for the Third Reich, while those without such value were killed. Thus, the overhead for them was eliminated, well, as fast as the people themselves could be killed. And that's really all that mattered to Alfred, the bottom line, the Krupp bottom line. For he, Alfred, had been bred for such a point of view. But such a system can't last forever, as it corrupts the enslavers as well as the enslaved. And indeed, as the war dragged on, not to the benefit of the Reich, Alfred's continuing needs meant a lowering of standards for his ever-growing number of workers. When Jewish slaves were first used, the minimum age was 17, but then that fell to 14, then to 12. By late 1944, six-year-olds were being used in whatever capacity they could undertake. But what never stopped was the brutality and what never improved were their conditions. Hence, Alfred's workforce always, not to be too obscene about it, declined in quality. To make up for this, the quantity was always increased. And the Krupanier were contaminated as well by Alfred's program of slave labor. Just outside the main group of workshops in Essen, some 55 Krupp prisoner camps had been set up. The locals could have not known what their purpose was. Certainly as raw goods were sent in and finished goods came out. As for how the locals felt about this, that was up to the individual 
But as long as Alfred and Hitler were running the concern and country, respectively, everyone kept their mouth shut. It may be remembered that back in 1939, Krupp brought volunteers from Central and Western Europe to Essen. True, they were POWs, and true, they did not have a choice. But in the Nazi mentality, of which Alfred was a true believer, the French and the men of the Low Countries were superior to the Poles, Russians, Slavs, and certainly the Jews. Hence, they had been treated better at first, as we have seen. But there was another benefit of not being from the East. When the volunteers had been shipped to Western Germany, it was for a specific amount of time, as every good Nazi, and Alfred certainly was that, believed the war in the East would be over in a year or two, three at the outside. So when those men's terms were up, Alfred ordered that they be released from service. Oh, they would still be POWs, but moved out of Essen, so others, less fortunate, could take their place. But just to be clear, Alfred wrote in that same directive, the Eastern workers and Poles were subject to indefinite service. And as we have seen with their living conditions, that indefinite period would not be that long, which was the whole point. And yet, as the war went against the Germans, even this policy was modified and then canceled. By 1944, no one was going anywhere, and everyone's living conditions continued to deteriorate as more Jews were brought in. For now, as we have seen, every nationality was being treated brutally. How can you physically abuse one person, but not the person next to them? You can't. After a time, the SS, and it must be said, Krupp police, treated all inmates the same. And to push the point further, most of the camps around Essen were only administered by the SS. Those who came into contact with the inmates were Krupp's men, which was the way Alfred wanted it. And he always got what he wanted. So it will come as only a mild surprise to find out that the conditions of Alfred Krupp's work camps were worse than everyone else's, even I.G. Farben's, the chemical giant. As early as October of 42, General Adolf Westhoff of the OKW High Command of the Armed Forces complained that the Russian POW's living conditions were not up to the Wehrmacht standards. In his complaint, he listed the beatings, the lack of proper food, the resolution to shoot for minor infractions, and of all things, the barbed wire, which was thought to ruin morale. That's what guards and guard towers were for. Supposedly, and one has to question the veracity behind this, even Hitler complained that year of the Russians' conditions. Yes, work them, he said, but feed them so they can work. After all, it is hard to be the master race if all other races are killed off. And again, Albert Speer's detailed notes reflected Hitler's confusion 
towards Krupp's brutality and barbed wires. In mid-1942, the SS put out a decree that forbade the wire around civilian camps, to which Alfred forbade his men to follow that decree. An SS inspection the following year showed that Alfred's camps around Essen had even more wire strung up. The simplest and probably most accurate reason why this was so came from Drexel Sprecher, an American attorney who closely watched most of the trials at Nuremberg, certainly Alfred's, and had read through much of the piles of paperwork captured as Essen was occupied by Allied forces. In short, he stated that as for the brutality of the Krupp camps, as Alfred was the only person who could admonish these men, and he was simply too busy to do so, they let themselves go. And when Germans go, they really go. Which is true, to a point, but there most assuredly are other reasons. As the war continued, most of the men in Essen, between 16 and 60, were called up for some type of military service. Hence, all those foreign men were relatively alone with many lonely German females. And there were cases of consensual intercourse between the local women and caged men. Lust, like life, will find a way. So the barbed wire was as much for the local women as it was for the POWs. Alfred had posted numerous warnings all over Essen, which seemed only to make it more exciting to the young maidens. Of course, there was another reason. Alfred was trying, in every possible way, to maximize his profits. If harsh treatment got him more items produced, so be it. It was his priority, as it had been for generations, to keep the concern on firm financial footing. This means profits. It was also the sole proprietor's job to look after the croppeneer. This, too, required money, and lots of it. And last but not least was Krupp's larger role of safekeeping the fatherland. This simply meant that as many weapons as possible had to be produced. Anything else was treason. And, of course, there were the bombs. The first big bombing of Essen came on March 5, 1943, and from there it continued, ever steadily increasing. And the British bombers did not hit the Villa Hugel, which would have done nothing to slow down production. No, the Krupp factories and the slave camps around them were the main targets, for both were working for the Third Reich, though the latter against their will. In March of 43, British bombs killed some 100 Polish prisoners. In October of 44, some 820 POWs were killed, and another 643 were wounded. Still, the other part of this equation is that the Germans be they Krumpenier or Krupp guards, had some sort of shelter when the bombs rained down. The prisoners simply had to make do. To be sure, after the bombing started, 
The POWs begged their guards to let them dig slit trenches. At least it would be something. So the request, or rather demand, was sent up the chain of command. But Alfred said no. It would take away from the work. So from 1943 until the end of the bombing campaign of Essen, camps would be destroyed. Most of the prisoners would be killed. The camp would be rebuilt. More prisoners would be brought in. And the process would start all over again. During the last year of the war, the prisoners, with their own hands, ignored their guards and hollowed out a patch in the ground. The guards, showing some kind of humanity, did not stop them. Then again, their desperate acts afforded them little protection. By the war's end, tens of thousands of POWs had died. But the exact number can never be known, for most records of this kind were burned, and the need to take such records became less important as the bombing increased. Yet, one of the many great ironies of the war, as Alfred would deny little at Nuremberg, was that Nazi Germany's main slaver, and therefore Krupp's main slaver, Fritz Sankel, was not only found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity, but was hanged with nine other men of the same crimes on October 16, 1946. But some of those he had served, like Alfred Krupp, Albert Speer, who served 20 years, and the directors of I.G. Farben, were not strung up, though found guilty themselves. Even more, many communiques of Sockles were found that showed him begging his various superiors to offer their slave workers better conditions and more food. Now, this was not for mercy's sake, but simply quality control. A decently fed worker can't produce more than one who is weak from starvation. Remember, it was his job to provide Krupp and the other barons with manpower, but that mattered little if they were exposed to the elements, starved and beaten. But Alfred never expected them to produce as much as his Krumpenier. Why? Because they were not German. Hence, he was not expecting equal value, so he valued them less, and his indirect treatment of them demonstrated this. And this the Canning King never hid from view at Nuremberg. When questioned about the relatively low daily calories his workers were getting, compared to most other camps owned by other industrialists or the SS or the Gestapo, Alfred's response was delivered flatly. The fact that complaints were frequently made on account of insufficient food for foreign workers is well remembered by me.